back to the Idiom Podcast. My name is Connor O'Brien. If you're new here, this is a show where we interview artists, producers, and industry experts, really anyone who we feel can help you grow as a producer. As always, this episode is brought to you by EdiumProd.com, an online resource dedicated to teaching electronic producers the tools and tactics needed to make better music. If you want to level up your production skills, whether it's learning the basics, writing better music, improving your mixes, or developing a more creative mindset, we've got you covered. Now, in this episode, I have a chat with Origin Nielsen. Origin Nielsen is a Norwegian DJ and producer who's been a staple in the dance music scene for over 15 years. Regularly releasing with Armada Music, he's collabed with industry heavyweights like Armin Van Buren and Cosmic Gate, and he's placed as high as 32nd in the annual DJ Mag Top 100 poll. In this episode, we start off with Origin's background, discussing how he fell in love with trance music at a young age. He talks about how he learned to produce music despite a lack of educational resources available for him at that time and what it took for him to get his first release-ready song. He explains the story of how Armin Van Buren picked him up when smaller labels were consistently rejecting his music and how he was able to leverage that friendship in order to grow his career. He also explains why he was so hesitant to make the leap to producing music full-time, even though he was already raking inside the DJ Mag Top 100 poll. Now on the production side, Origin Nielsen walks through the production tools and techniques that he's picked up while he's been locked away in the studio during the pandemic. He breaks down what his favorite synths and effects are, why he actually prefers software over hardware nowadays, and what the keys are for him to a loud and clean mix down. He also discusses what he's learned collaborating with Armin Van Buren, what it's like actually working with him in the studio, and what aspiring producers should look for in a collaboration partner. Overall, as you'll hear, Origin was really fun to talk to. He's got plenty of great stories from his 15 plus years in the industry, and more than anything, just excited for you all to get into the interview. Now, before that, one last thing, Origin just released a single out in Armada called Instinct. It's a really great track. We actually talk about the production a decent amount later on, so I'm gonna play you a preview of that so you can get a feel for his music and get excited for the episode. With that, let's wrap things up and get to the episode. Here's the EDM Podcast with Origin Nielsen. Welcome back to the EDM Podcast. Today, I'm joined by Orjan Nielsen. Orjan, how are you doing today? I am doing great. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. So to start, I want to learn a bit more about your background with music. You can go back as far as you'd like, but I'd like to learn what got you into music initially and later on music production. Uh, well, I've always been into music. I, I, I sort of have like a musical background in what like my parents were always into music. My brother was into music. He was a drummer, actually. Uh, so I I started out like banging the drums when I was like three years old. I didn't even yeah. reach the pedals, but <laughs> I, I was still on the drum set just trying my best. And tried to apply for like uh, piano, guitar or drums when it comes to like music school back in elementary school. But Unfortunately, they only had clarinet, which actually gave a shot. Yeah. And uh, yeah, that wasn't for me. So I just bought myself like one of those really small, tiny keyboards. And I just started, you know, playing away on that one. And I kind of learned myself how to play keyboard. Like so I'm self-taught, basically. And then, yeah, when I was like 13, 14 years old, somebody brought me a CD, which was in Trans We Trust, the uh, first one. Yeah, it, I just got hooked. I just realized, oh, wow, I can actually be just one person and make uh, the whole track, like the beats and the bass and everything. So, yeah, that's how it started. And then my, I think my mom and dad, they, they, they thought, okay, 
instead of buying him a moped and keeping away from dangerous traffic, let's give him a synthesizer. <laughs> yeah. So it was a very good choice by my parents, I think. So how did you know somebody gave you that CD in Transweet Trust when you were 13, 14? Were you immediately like, oh, I want to make that? Like, how did you make that connection? Especially kind of when you were getting your start, like it wasn't like you could just like Google how to make trance. And it was like as obvious, the you know career path of being a producer DJ. Yeah, well, the thing was, was I, I was always trying to get bands and, and, and create bands and get more people involved into music making and yeah. just like just writing tracks and stuff. And I, I, I couldn't for the life of me because it was a very small community, very closed one. So yeah. like nobody was like into it as, as, as much as I was. So when I just realized, OK, so there was one producer who made this one track. I wanted to know how he did that yeah. and how we made it sound so awesome. So it just started. Yeah. Yeah. So what was your next steps with that when you're like, okay, I want to learn how to make dance music, trance music. How did you get better at that point? Well, the thing was, I downloaded uh, this fast tracker. Was a mad tracker thing? Uh, yeah. It was sort of like <laughs> it looks like binary code. It's ones and zeros. <laughs> it was yeah. really, and I think I had about eight or was it sixteen samples. Uh, that's it. And I, I started to realize a little bit about how I could build and create tracks. And the same way, I think it was Fruit Loops as well. Somebody showed mm. me that. And I was like, okay, this is pretty cool, actually. And then uh, well, when I got my synthesizer when I was 16, that's when I really started to form and realize because it had an onboard sequencer. So I could actually mm. like store nice, nice sounding sounds on it. So I was like, okay, let me try this. And I started building, like, I think I only had like three minutes. Like that was the total amount of time you could spend on one yeah. track. It grew something in me, just like I wanted to do something. And then I became a DJ as well uh, when I was 16. And I don't know, I, I just saw this video of, uh, I think it was Tiesto at Inner City. And uh, yeah, that's, uh, then I started to think, okay, I want to do that. I want to stand up there playing for people. So at 16, you were at that point committed to this is what my future is going to be. Like, I want a career in this. Well, I started definitely thinking about it. I was supposed to be a neurosurgeon. That was my goal. Uh, But sometime between 16 and 18, everything just changed. Like I was playing for people. I I was was making tiny little tracks. Nothing ever finished. But people Mm -hmm. gave me good feedback and it didn't apparently sound half bad. Listening back today, yes, it did sound (laughs) more than half bad. So yeah. yeah. How did your parents respond to that? It seems like they were initially supportive, you know, giving you a synthesizer, (laughs) kind of letting you take lessons. But when you're like, hey, mom and dad, I want to be a trance DJ, what was their reaction? Yeah, it wasn't the best reaction, obviously. I mean, I'm just, I'm I'm a dad myself, so I can just imagine (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) how I would react to those kind of news. Um, But yeah, definitely, um, at first, uh, they were like, kind of shocked because I was doing great in school and everything like seemed to go towards medical studies. And then all of a sudden I'm just coming home like, yeah, mom, dad, nope. I'm becoming a musician. That's it. Yep. Sorry. My brother was fully like supportive. My mom and dad was just worried. Like they supported me, but they were really worried about like the future and how I'm going to support myself and blah, 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 blah. So the usual like problems that parents will concoct in their head. So once you hit 18, you were finished with high school, you kind of had the option of going to university or conservatory. What was your choice at that point? Well, first we have this, uh, we ha- we all have to, uh, it's a mandatory to go to uh, the military to check. Yeah, well, well, if you can be a part of the Norwegian forces, I think it's about nine months you have to okay. be in the military. Uh, so first I did that. And when I came back, uh, because I didn't stay there for long because I'm full of allergies and stuff. And apparently they don't like that. 
<laughs> so, yeah. Yeah. So they, uh, I got back again. And at that time, I, I was already sure that I really want, I wanted to make parties and I wanted to play them and see if I could actually, if I had talent. Yeah. And apparently I did. Um, so they realized like quickly that I'm not going to, I'm not going to apply for university. They were of mm -hmm. course very sad about that. And to be fair, like I, I don't regret my, my job, like my job decision back then, but I would yeah. love to have that, like that education that would, that would be cool to have. Like I've never stopped being interested in like the medical profession. Yeah. It's interesting looking back. I feel like we don't get a lot of people that say that, like a lot of people drop out and they're like, oh, I'm like, I can't believe I like went in the first place. But I think it's interesting looking back that you are presumably very happy with what you have right now, but are still interested in things that aren't music. I think a lot of people don't admit that. <laughs> the thing is, my life is all about music. So I, for for my own other interests, like this was a hobby back in the days. It's not a hobby yeah. anymore. It's a passion. It's something that just is consuming my whole life, both basically. <laughs> and the, the thing is, it's just like I, I still have like interest outside of it. And like looking at medical magazines and stuff like that and see what like uh, – what they have going on right now it's so interesting so it's like it's it's sort of like a it's just, it would be cool to be a neurosurgeon as a hobby <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> doing a little flip on that one but yeah so you you know got back from your military service decided that hey this is what i'm going to be doing were you djing shows by that point were you you know releasing tracks what were those you know following steps to start to you know make some money off of this and then build up your career well, technically, I, I was already a resident DJ at, uh, I think it was uh, Ritz, that's what it was called. It's a local club up here. And I was uh, I, I was a resident DJ there. I had uh, I played weddings, I played Christmas parties, birthday <laughs> parties, and I, uh, yeah, I did everything all the time. How did you like those types of gigs? <sighs> <laughs> well, it's, it's sort of like a mixed emotion kind of thing, isn't it? Because... Uh, Looking back, obviously, I had fun and it was nice nights, but I played for seven hours for probably $300. Um, and uh, most of the time, people came up and told me what a bad DJ I am. And then I played the track they wanted to hear and somebody else called me a bad DJ because I didn't play the track <laughs> that they wanted to hear. Yeah, And that's the one thing I really don't miss is the fact that it's a very... Um, gratitude in that, uh, in, in that profession is, is hard to come by. I have to admit, though, it, it did form me into the one DJ I am today is the fact that I, I, I think I learned how to please, uh, 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 how to put it, ages 5 till 75 Yeah. When, when it came to those kind of things. I see a lot of like uh, people who are, haven't like been DJing like that uh, yeah. before. And, uh, and you just realize that they're playing mostly for themselves. Many of them are. <laughs> so yeah. it's like you realize as soon as you stand behind those decks playing for a group from 15 to like 50 or whatever, that you're not playing for you, you're playing for them. And that's something yeah. that many DJs need to learn. But then again, not everybody is a DJ. Somebody is a DJ because they, that's how you have a concert these days for us producers. So it's, I don't know, it's weird. So kind of speeding things up, at what point did you start getting to a point with your production where you were thinking about releasing? Well, that's the thing, though. I think the first track that I finished was in 2002. It was called Tears and Desperation. Okay. Uh, then I was still under the DJ Governor thingy. Uh, yeah. As soon as I made that, I thought, okay, I'm not only onto something. This is something that I could actually see myself playing for an audience. And I was, I was really scared of always playing like, like I was always scared of playing stuff that I made in front of an audience. 
So uh, to be fair, yeah, that was the first time I thought, you know what, this is actually pretty darn good. So when you had your residency, um, when you were like 18, 19, 20, was that under the DJ Governor brand name? To be fair, at the time, I didn't really have a name. I just went by my own name just because I, DJ Governor did sound a little bit too, <laughs> I don't know, tacky when it yeah. came to that. Like, so I just used my own name. Uh, yeah. But DJ Governor sounded cool and like uh, internationally, I thought it sounded cool. And everybody went under DJ something then. So, but yeah, no, it was uh, Orgy Nilsson back then as well. Did you end up like releasing that first track? Kind of talk about what those first few releases were for you. Well, the thing was, I sent that one to quite a few labels and I got no. And uh, I, I thought, okay, I'm having some issues here because I, I, I thought it was really good track. I thought it was an awesome track. Like in my head it was. And it was the first time yeah. I could sit down and actually go like, you know what? I can both play and send this out. So I did that. I got a rejection. I remember saying, you know what? I'm going to make a track that nobody can say no to. And mm. I, I, in my head, that didn't happen until like 2005. And yeah. then... <laughs> this is pretty funny because that was uh, DJ Governor Redwoods. And I've made a pledge to myself, which was if this track didn't get signed within the first six months after it was done, then I would quit and go back to medical school. And then Armin picked it up. <laughs> <laughs> so that was, uh, that was, yeah, that was, that was definitely um, a milestone for me. And uh, I couldn't yeah. believe it when he added me on good old fashioned MSN back in the days. <laughs> And I still remember the old uh, the old email he had, avanburen at hotmail.com. <laughs> what if he yeah. still can use that? I no, he, he doesn't. Though. <laughs> I, I tried to ask him, but no, apparently that's gone. Aww. Yeah. <laughs> so I want to go back to what you said earlier, where you said to yourself, I'm going to make a track that nobody can say no to. How important do you feel like that little mantra was for you to get from the point where you were getting rejected to where you were getting picked up by Armin? It meant everything because it, it spurred a little devil inside of me. It was like I, I would rather, like, I, I, I probably started on this track uh, a year earlier or something like that. Yeah. But I never got to the point where I thought it was good enough. And then all of a sudden, like, there was this new style out there. Uh, yeah. And I thought, okay, you know what? This actually might fit now. Mm -hmm. And I, I went in, I polished it a lot. A lot and, of course, I, I, I was... I was producing on very small, like Philips mini sound system speakers. So I had no idea about frequencies or anything. Um, so I used my brother's car. He had a handicapped car because it was in a wheelchair and he had a, a slamming sound system in that car. <laughs> <laughs> so I used that as my sort of like backup monitors after I was done producing. And then all of a sudden I realized, you know what? Okay, this actually sounds good. And that's when I thought, you know what? This I'm going to send out. And I did not still dare to send it to Armada or Black Hole or those kind of labels. I sent it to smaller labels. They were all rejecting it. And I was like, oh my God, okay, so this is not happening. And then um, a friend of mine from Holland, uh, he had connections with uh, some producers from uh, from Holland as well. That was pretty big back in the days. They were called Primer, DJ Danjo and Rob Styles. And Danjo uh, took, kind of took me under his wing and he was like, you know what? I'm sending this to Armin. I'm like, what? Yeah, I'm sending this to Armin. Two days later, he came back to me and said, yeah, Armin loved it. He's going to add you to MSN. I'm like, no, he's not. And then Avon Buren showed up and yeah. Why do you think that's so interesting? Like, why do you feel like those smaller labels rejected you when kind of the king at that time and to some extent now wanted that track? Well, I guess that's why there were the, like he heard something 
in me that nobody else did. It took a chance on me, basically, because I, for some reason, there was also like this geographical thing in the beginning where me coming from all the way up north in Norway, nobody was like, you're Norwegian? What town is that? Is that even a town? Can somebody live yeah. there? <laughs> and then all of a sudden, like, he just said, you know what? I love this track. And he, he signed it and it did what really well. Yeah. And it was, uh, I, I don't know, it, it was just the fact that Armin has always had a good ear for things. Still does, till this day. And uh, he heard something that nobody else did. So I, I, I'm really grateful for that. And he just kept pushing me and he has always supported me. So, yeah. So you had that first track. Were things starting to kind of accelerate for you at that point? Did it level off? What were those next steps to go from, you know, your first big signing to getting more of a career and established name? Oh, definitely. Uh, this was also a very tough time. It was like the in-between time. Vinyl yeah. didn't sell. You didn't like physical copies didn't sell at all. Portals started to get better, but you had no streaming service, you know? So there was no money to be made on sales or anything. I think the... I think most people used Audio Jelly and Beatport back then as well. And um, yeah, uh, so it was a, sort of like a weird time. It hadn't really hit the top yet, if you know what I mean. It's just like... It, yeah, it, kind of pre-bubble. Yeah, pre-bubble. So basically, uh, I had a few tracks that came out, which was really good. And I, I, I was it was cool to see I'm, I was actually getting a small following. But I, I was all alone. I had no managers, no yeah. nothing. There were like there was no strategy behind anything. So I like I had no idea about the importance of social media or whatever. So it's like I had no idea about anything. So for the first, I would say the first four, no, two years, 2006, 2008, I, I was all on my own and nothing really happened. And I had some pretty decent trans tracks out at that time as well. But yeah, I think 2008 when La Guitarra came out, um, that was a turning point in my career. That was definitely a turning point. So when that track came out, were you starting to yourself think about, okay, I need to build a team and get more of a strategy behind my brand? Or did people come to you with that more, you know, concrete vision for your growth? Yeah, well, that's, that's it. As, as soon as, uh, something happens, people take notice. Because any new producer, he's not going to have a chance of finding out how to do this unless he's gone like into really in-depth of it. And I was only into making music. I didn't care about anything else. I had no idea there was anything else. So people yeah. just hit me up. And I remember Jan DeVos from Four Strings said, hey, man, I'm building up a management here, an agency. Uh, would you like to be a part of it? And it was Jan DeVos from Four Strings. I mean, take me away. So I, I, I thought, is this really happening? And yeah. Uh, him and his wife took me under his wing for a while and they did a bang up job. So yeah, it was cool. Now, I was, I was kind of like, I don't know, I was still working a job. I was a dad and I was making music. I still hadn't taken that leap yet of just doing this into a super career, even though I probably should have. <laughs> yeah. So at what point did you finally make that leap? I remember I was going on vacation. Uh, I had a job as an orderly at a hospital here uh, where I live. And... I went out into a one-month vacation, and my fingers were basically ruined by uh, disinfectants and stuff like that, and working in a hospital, which is a dry environment, and I realized, you know what? Uh, I probably shouldn't be working with this. So I remember asking my parents if I could have some financial help, not much, just to get by uh, for one year, and if I couldn't make it on my own then, then, I'm, then I would just stop. No, so basically, uh, Armin like uh, Armin was really supporting me, and he I made a track called "Go Fast," and he just played it everywhere, and nobody knew that it was me that made it. 
But I, when I saw the support I got from him, I just took that leap. I just said, you know yeah. what? If this is going to happen, it's going to happen now. And I can't be in between. So, uh, yeah, I, uh, I don't know what happened. It's just I, I went into the studio and I couldn't stop producing. And all of a sudden I've made Between the Race, which mm. Armin just played everywhere. And all of a sudden, like everybody loved that track. And I had so many releases coming out. So the year after I told my parents that, I was uh, number 49 in the world. So then I realized, yeah, I probably did a good thing there. I think it's interesting when, I don't know, I feel like a lot of people want to make that leap to pursuing it full time a little bit earlier than they should. And I feel like you're on the opposite of that, where you almost waited too long, where you had a career um, outside of music, but you also had very, very, very promising signs when it came to music. So I think it's just interesting to hear that placed against the story that I hear from a lot of other producers that kind of jumped the gun too early with that. Yeah, I I probably should have like done this back in 2008. That's when I probably should have done that and just focused more on it. Uh, But I mean, everything has a reason, doesn't it? Yeah. Uh, So uh, I'm guessing if I'd done done it then, maybe I wouldn't have been as strong as a producer as I was when I actually broke through. So I think I had, uh, because I broke through like in 2010, 2011, I was already a more accomplished producer. So the Mm -hmm. stuff that came out was actually higher in quality than what it would have been two years earlier. So yeah, maybe maybe it was just the exact right time. I'm not sure. You never know. Cool. So kind of speeding things up, you recently just released your 15 years in music album. Kind of talk about what it was like for you to reflect back on what you've done with your career so far and to decide, you know, what songs you wanted to kind of stand there as front and center for what Orgen Nielsen is at this point. It was a really fun trip, you know, down memory lane and just listening to and trying to figure out which tracks to, do, to put on this album. <laughs> yeah. and you've heard their expression, kill your darling, darlings, right? So it's uh, yeah. sort of what I did. It's uh, I, Most of the tracks that I've released, I, I, I still love. Uh, I just got sick of them for a while because yeah. I always had to play them. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it was really fun listening to it. And it's, uh, it's sort of give, like giving me another, like, another set of inspiration to make more like trancey stuff as well. That's why there's more trancey stuff coming out. It's just, it has been, it has been a few years since I really like felt trance, but I'm thinking, you know what, maybe it's time to bring back that little bit of the old sound, a little bit more darker and dirty instead of just a fast and uplifting. Cool. So with that, let's kind of slide things over into production. There's a lot that I want to talk about, but just to get things started, what does your process look like when you're creating a new track from scratch in the DAW? Are you a drums first, chords first, synths first? Kind of talk on what those first few hours generally look like for you. Well, it's, <laughs> you never know. Like yeah. you have, <laughs> I, I, like I have no idea what I'm going to do half the time. Uh, sometimes I'm sitting there, I have no clue where to go and what to start with, and sometimes I've I've hummed uh, a melody into my phone and I'll I'll try to put that into the project, like and find a sound to it, or maybe I just have a beat in my head. Like it, it's never a set way on how I'm going to mm-hmm. start things, and I always start with an empty project nowadays. It's I don't know because every project is different. It's better to start empty and see what happens. Where do you feel like in 2020 your inspiration comes from to just, you know, sit down regularly and to continue writing and progressing? Well, that's the thing now. Uh, usually, like, back in, the, back in the days, it was, well, just even last year. Yeah. It's been a lot about the touring and the audience, which I'm playing for, and all the live elements. 
now I'm more probably it's um, it's probably more inspired by listening elements. It's, mm-hmm. it, because of course it's different. Everybody's sitting at home streaming stuff. Yeah. So tracks that might work really well on a festival uh, might really suck <laughs> when you listen to yeah. it at home. <laughs> uh, so I'm I'm trying to focus a bit more on melody and trying to well I'm I'm geeking out. So I'm learning new techniques. I've even I'm, I'm a Cubase guy and I downloaded another pro- program called Ableton just to try it out and learning more. I already know Cubase Logic and Fruit Loops. So yeah, or yeah. FL Studio. That's what it's called now. So what are some of those techniques that you said that you've been picking up recently outside of, um, you know, grabbing Ableton Live and learning how to use that? <laughs> well, one thing I do more now than I did before uh, is committing. Uh, before I could have like a, a VST or a synth there for ages and I didn't like bounce or anything. Now, if I feel, okay, this actually sounds good, I'm bouncing imme- immediately and getting it out of the way. If yeah. that's not good enough, then okay, then I'll just change it afterwards, but I'm committing more. Yeah. So it's Why do you uh, feel like that's so important for you? Because you, then it's down. You don't have to fiddle around with it anymore. If it sounds good, it sounds good. Be true to your first thought and just get it out there. And I think it's 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 quickened my 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 work rate, which was to be fair quite quick already. But yeah, no, I I don't know. It's just if you have a good idea, don't fiddle around with it too much because you might end up just ruining it. So I just thought, yeah. you know what? I'm just going to commit. I'm just going to bounce this, get it out of the way, and then I have it. And I did. So would you say at this point, there's any tools in terms of like VSTs, sense effects that are really important to what your workflow is? Oh, definitely. Uh, I use a lot of universal audio plugins as well. Um, mm-hmm. So there's a few dis- distortions in there that I use all the time just to add a little bit of harmony and some grit to it. Yeah. And um, I think it's called VSM3. That's something that is completely essential in my studio. It's just so badass. I think it's. I think more people have it, but like I'm a huge Universal Audio guy, so it's. Um, I love their plugins. So uh, yeah, and they. I don't know. It just sounds so crisp. I can have a pretty boring sound, and I add this to it, and all of a sudden it just changes tone and character completely, and into something cool. So yeah, that's that's definitely an important one, and I'm having a lot of fun with Diva at the moment which is an old thing, but I've never gotten into it because I had the JP8080, which basically was the same thing, more or less. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, uh, but no, but it was, uh, I just love VSTs nowadays. I probably should get some more hardware, but I don't know. Um, I had a lot of hardware back in the days. And I just realized now that I'm, yeah, I'm more comfortable with the software stuff. So in a lot of your recent tracks, your bass lines in general are so important to what your sound is at this point. What are you generally reaching for when it comes to designing those sounds for your basses? First of all, like I want to see like if 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 a VST is stronger on like if if a VST is strong on its own, then you don't have to use too many third-party plugins on it. So like for yeah. me, I I like to use Serum, Spire, Silent, and sometimes also the new Massive, which is pretty cool. I still kind of prefer the old massive though. I don't know why. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but like I I I like the grit. No, I haven't really played around with the new massive much. Like the user interface is great, but I feel like they were like three years too late for me to really sink into it. But you know, I'm sure there's a time. <laughs> I have it in the, you know, complete bundle, but I'm like, I just have you know, 
you're like four years too late for me to get this into my workflow. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I'm pretty sure if, if, if you just like go in there and you just sit down and you, you learn the ins and outs of it, it's going to be probably one of the most important things in your studio. But yeah. like you said, it's like it's right now I'm just too hooked on Serum and the old Massive and Spire and Silent that it's really hard to find another one where I'm supposed to learn inside out to make the sounds that I want. So, but I'm, I'm still trying, and it definitely has a much clearer, crispier sound to it than the old one, obviously. Yeah. Where do you find yourself using it in terms of what sounds in your mixes? Most of the time, it's uh, either atmospherical, like maybe some like some fo foley kind of sounds, basically, because they have a lot of like cool granular stuff uh, on the new massive ones. Uh, so, the, yeah, the granular stuff is really cool. And the filter and LFOs when you connect them, it's 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 a bit of a it's a bit of a cobweb to go through, but uh, you you'll figure it out. And uh, but yeah, I think also for like mid basses, I'm, I'm I haven't used it much on sub basses yet, but on the mid basses to make some tone and some characteristics to the bass, yeah, definitely. Anything outside of the VSM three that you use for distortion, I think you know distorted bass lines are a central central aspect of your sound. So anything else that you kind of lend towards. Well, I think most people have already heard Saturn in my tracks. I think everybody's yeah. heard that. <laughs> yeah, that's that. Fab filter has a ton of good stuff, but the Saturn has a, I don't know, it's, it's sort of like a distinct sound to it. I don't know what it is, but yeah, I just love the fact that you can multiband the distortion. It's awesome. Have you picked up the newest version, the Saturn too? Yes, two? indeed. How do you like it so far? It looks slick, and it sounds pretty slick too. Like, I, to be fair though, it's like. It, <clears throat> It isn't that much of like I'm pretty sure when I go like go through it, it's gonna be definitely a lot better than the first one. But yeah. like immediately, like I, I've just used more or less the same uh, parameters that you the first one has. <laughs> I haven't tried the other <laughs> ones yet. Uh, yeah, yeah, there's just too much stuff to go through because I've downloaded so many things. <laughs> I know. <laughs> I feel that. I think yeah. anyone listening to this podcast, if you've been producing for more than like a week, you feel the same way. <laughs> So, you know, one of the greatest aspects of FabFilter Saturn is the fact that you can do multiband distortion. In general, how are you kind of leveraging those capabilities to be able to um, distort and saturate the bands independently and also to change even what the models are for that distortion? Well, to be to be fair, though, like what I usually use it for uh, is, is not the low ends. Like I turn, I basically take away the low ends. I don't like those. Yeah. So uh, I want to focus on the mid lows and mids and highs. That's what I'm focusing on at that one because technically, of course, you can add Saturn and just use low low band on like a kick or something. It will still immediately sound a lot cooler. But like for me, like my uh, Spectre has been just uh, the mid bass sounding thing because it, it it makes it sound so crisp and you can still keep it a bit down. It doesn't peak. Yeah. So for me, that's that's been kind of important to use. I think I've used it in almost every single track the past two years, to be fair. And and also on leads as well. It's like you can easily like clean out a lead or make it a little bit more enhanced without it sounding distorted or forced. Because let's face it, like leads can be a bit difficult in the high ends. Yeah. So it's uh, but this one for some reason like because of the multiband thing, it's just you can clean it up exactly where you want it to. And together with the Q3, which I also use a lot, it's yeah. easy to find the peaks. And I always like try to take down those peaks so it doesn't like overwhelm the track. One thing that I just want to reiterate to like 
maybe add some clarity for the people with um, saturating your lead sounds. A lot of times distortion on anything above 10K, let's just say you've got like a super solid lead. If you have distortion above 10K, it can sound so harsh so quickly because yeah. it's kind of just harsh, bright noise. So with, you know, uh, you know, Saturn, what you can do is just say, hey, I don't really want to do anything above 10K. Just give me some saturation on the body of the sound. That way you get that thick and fullness that you want from the saturation, but you're not getting just a, you know, really aggressive, harsh tone. Exactly. And to be to to be fair though, it's like after ten thousand, there's not really much happening. Yeah, you can probably hear it a lot on the, on the speakers. But usually, even like huge speaker systems and everything, they they kind of tend to compress from fifteen and down. Uh, so it's like um, you won't even hear after fifteen. You won't even hear anything. So you've done a great job explaining everything about your production process so far, and that makes sense given the fact that you've released a fair number of courses and studio sessions. I think you did uh, a couple, you've done a couple with Armada and Fader Pro, a couple with mm. 7, 8, 9, 10. Just kind of talk about first off, what has inspired you to release these courses when, you know, a lot of successful producers at your level kind of stay away from that? Well, the thing for me is the fact that I, I come from a different era. I come from the era of no YouTube, mostly hardware. Yeah. And yeah, it, it, to be fair, it was a lot of trial and error based production type <laughs> training yeah. back in the days. <laughs> so I thought, you know what? It, it, and people ask me questions all the time. They're always there asking, how did you do this? Oh, I love this sound. And for some reason, people can always hear that it's me, no matter what kind of genre it is. So I thought, okay, I'm just going to show them my thought process and how I do the things that I do. And it's nothing, it's nothing magical, really. It's just the way I work. So it's like I'm, to get like the, the technical aspect of stuff out of the way, that's cool. Because in the end, it's all about your own creativity it comes down to, right? Yeah. So learning just the, helping people learn the technical aspects and telling them why I'm doing stuff. I think that just helps everyone. Like I, th I think the most successful producers are the ones that can take that technical information and learn how to apply it in a creative context. And exactly. that idea gets lost on YouTube, especially. And, you know, that's something that I always try to preach in our courses at EDM Prod, where, you know, I'm teaching you all the technical things that go into these certain production concepts, but you need to learn how to take those and to use that for something creative, something emotional, something emotive, not just like, oh, this is how I make this dope bass sound. And this is the pattern <laughs> that I'm going to use for it. Now I'm going to use this in my next 10 tracks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a, and what I try to teach everybody that every track is different. You, you like I'm I have templates to start stuff in, uh, and I realized that at one point that's going to stifle creativity because you're just going to open it up and it's going to start sounding the same. Yeah, that's why I'm saying like just start an empty project and add something. It doesn't matter if it's just a kick and a bass. It doesn't matter. Yeah, it's a start mm. and it's a start of something creative that is hopefully uh, original. Yeah. So one track that I really want to talk about is one of your latest singles, a track called Instinct. I'll play a preview of that so people can listen to it right now. So I want to hear a bit about the production for it, but first off, kind of talk about what that initial idea was for that track. <laughs> this is pretty fun too because uh, yeah. I'm, I'm I'm becoming an old man and uh, <laughs> my memory is sometimes not the best. So this, but for some reason, melodies tend to come back to me. And this is a melody I started working on. I think it was already in 2006. Uh, yeah, 
<laughs> and crazy. Uh, yeah, it is crazy because I, randomly I, I remembered it uh, a few months back and I started producing it again. I was a huge fan of Ralphie B and his Midway moniker and everything back in the days. Um, and I remember I had this melody that I thought like that was supposed to be sort of a little bit like him, even with like the, like sound wise and everything that just fit the melody I had in my head. And then I realized, you know what? I haven't heard a melody like that in a long time. And I remembered this melody that I made. And I thought, you know what? This is, this is I would call it an instinct. The reason that's why it's called instinct, because this is instinctively, instinctively like what I made back in the days. Like it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's just a melody that's just flowed through my fingers when I played it. Mm. And it did the same today. Like I, the first time I played it in probably, what would it be, 14 years? And I played it flawlessly the first time again. When I remembered it in my head and I thought, yep, that's it. That's it. Yeah. I'm going to make it again. But it needed to have like sort of like a, a 2020 kind of suit, if you know what I mean. Yeah. I think that's like a really, it's a big idea that you just mentioned too, like taking the melodic ideas from something that worked well 15 years ago should still work now, but modernizing and putting that within the context of what's, um, you know, kind of standard for dance trance music right now. Exactly. Or just add a little twist to, to it of your own and to be fair, like I, melodies are timeless. That's what yeah. I, I I always said that like it doesn't matter like if this melody was made in 1927 uh, on a on a violin if it works if it works. So it's uh, what what changes is arrangement and techniques and sounds, but melodies don't. I just wrapped up an interview with Cosmic Gate that we released last week or so, and. DJ Bossy from Cosmic Gate was talking a lot about that, how they've kind of stuck with this initial idea of what their sound was in 1999 and developed it, but you know, still stayed true to that initial idea. Do you feel like that's something that has been conscious for you to be like, hey, this is what got me into trance, got me into DJing. I still need to keep things modern, but stay true to what that initial <laughs> initial vision was for you. Yeah, technically in, in many ways, yes. Yeah. But uh, I'm also kind of the kind of the guy who likes progress and likes forward thinking. And um so for me, it was uh, at one point, I remember listening to a few trans uh, promos from different people, and there was nothing there that gave me that good old feeling that trans gave me when I was like a kid. And I, I remember I was thinking like, you know what, I, I kind of want to make those melodies again. And it's really tough because a lot of melodies have already been made, <laughs> if you know what I yeah. mean. Um, <laughs> totally. Yeah. So it's like, but it, sometimes it's just something that hits you and you feel like, you know what? this can actually be done like the melodies of old to combine with uh like i have this thing with basses i love my basses dirty and gritty as so i thought maybe it's going to be too tough making this this kind of like sweet and quite euphoric melody together with a bass line like that but i thought you know what what the hell i'm going to give it a go yeah and i don't know somewhere in there i just like yeah this fits this actually fits I was really happy about that, though. So I'm, I'm kind of happy I didn't make the track in 2006, and I'm really happy I made it in 2020. Yeah, nice little second life for it. I love it. Yeah. <laughs> so a couple more questions on the production standpoint. One that a lot of people wanted to ask me about was what your mixing process looks like. I think Instinct is a great example of a big, full, energetic, and clean mix in 2020. So what does your general mixing process look like? Uh, well, I always try to, um, in the beginning when I start producing, uh, I'm not too much into mixing. Like it's, yeah. uh, it's, it's a process that comes a little bit eventually because you never know what you're going to add and you never know how in like the layering is going to sound. So you'll take the mixing as you go. And, but for me having a, a nice 
clean kick that works together with a, a sub and mid bass line. That's the first thing I would always clean up. I will always clean up the bass and the kick. After that, it's quite simply just frequency controlling and just making sure that nothing peaks and everything works well together. And one part that people need to really realize about mixing, you need to have space, which means you need to have something in the middle, you need to have something wide, you need to have something to the left, you need to have something to the right. Not, nothing should ever go all the way in the middle or all the way on the wide, <laughs> so on the stereo. <laughs> so it's basically, I, I, I try to tell people like before that I, I love tracks that has sort of like this fan kind of thing. Like a, like a like a fan that just you know opens up yeah. as the track goes. So it's like uh, it goes from being a little bit in your face to just being everywhere and just sort of like hugging you. If you know what I mean. It's it's yeah it's, yeah. So mixing wise, it's 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 not always about EQing or or uh, space moduling with the uh, reverbs and echoes and everything. It's it's also about where you place it in the mix and how where you place it like on the sides or in the middle. So it's it's all connected. So, you know, earlier you mentioned that Armin has been a great supporter and proponent of your project. And I think one of the most direct ways that he's done that is in your collabs that you've done with him. So, so I'd love to hear if there's anything that you've like learned from working with him, any lessons, either just kind of from a marketing or from a production that you've taken away from being able to work with one of the biggest names in the you know, entire music industry. Yeah, definitely is. Uh, I definitely have learned a lot of stuff from him. Like in the, I can already tell you that he already started sort of like mentoring and tutoring me back when I was like in, just in the beginning as well. Yeah. Um, one thing was, I think, get to the point or have something there so people can enjoy or dance or move to or put your hands in. Some kind of action in the track has to happen at all times. You can technically have a three-minute breakdown as long as there's something happening. So it's like, uh, he, he's taught me a lot of that. Uh, he, when he came to production-wise, we actually had a lot of the same ideas. So that's actually pretty good. So it, w- it was pretty fun working with him. And we, <laughs> you got to love the internet, like working over Skype. I mean, it's not as personal, but uh, it, it, yeah. <laughs> it, it still worked. We were bouncing back and forth. We used Dropbox and everything. And it was pretty fun because sometimes I could, just, I could send him like two stems and he was like, what the hell is this? This, this sounds weird. I'm like, just just put it in with the rest. And he yeah. did that. He's like, oh, that's pretty cool. And he did the same with me. I'm like, what the hell is this going to help me? And yeah. all of a sudden, you, it's it's pretty cool to have two different kind of processes and two different kind of ideas just happening like that. And, all, and when you listen to it like solo, you go like, this has nothing to do with anything. And then all yeah. of a sudden, it just makes a nice little stew. <laughs> so. Yeah, I think that's a great... Uh, example of a really powerful collaboration where you have similar tastes, like you're not, you know, driving the track in two completely direct different <laughs> directions, but you still have unique perspectives towards production and towards just music in general. So I think that's a great combination where you're not fighting, but you're building on top of each other. Exactly. And and there's, there's uh, gives and gets on every part of it. So it's like, sometimes I was like, no, I, I, I can't do that. And he's like, and then he would say the same to me, nope, you need to do this. And I'm like, yeah, yeah okay. And I do it. And I'm like, oh yeah, that actually worked. So it's, it, it was pretty cool. And to be fair with you, we did not have many like, uh, like where we went like no, or it was mostly, yes, that's cool. That's awesome. Yeah. And that's, that's when the easiest collabs happen. If you, if you're just sitting there and go like, you know what, that sounds cool. That's all. Oh, yeah. That's cool. Oh yes. Add that one too. And those are the collabs, you know, just going to work. So kind of speeding things up to where you're at right now, you know, I think a lot of people might look at where you're at with music and be like, God, it's got to be so easy to be where he's at. He's, you know, knows all these people's released all <laughs> these big tracks, 
but that's just not the case. I think it's an idealistic view to think that once you get, you know, big enough, all your, you know, all those problems go away. So kind of with that, talk about what some of the biggest problems are for you at this point. Obviously, you know, shows in COVID is going to be one of the main ones, but outside of that, what are some of those big things that you're struggling with right now in 2020, 15 years into this project? It's a struggle that it has been 15 years and a lot of my fan base from back in the days are now shifting. They all have families they don't, and, and they still listen to it and they still support me and stuff. And, uh, and then you have the new kids who likes the newer stuff that I have, but you always have pressure. Like you always have pressure at one point or two, like how to put it, you have to be good enough. It has to be good enough. It has to be spectacular every single time. Not every track a producer makes is going to be a hit. That is, that's just the way it goes. And yeah. the older you get, it, it, the tougher it gets as well because you have all these awesome youngsters who's out there and, and it's like you, you have... It's, and it's not competition either. It's not competition. It's just different views on stuff. So it's like, uh, for me, it's like that's why I always try to make everything. And that's why I always try to n- learn new techniques as well because I... I it's interesting. I love a lot of new stuff. A lot of the bass house stuff as well it has some really cool bass lines and really cool. Like they brought back basically the old 909 and 808 kind of things. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> like the hi hats I used in 2000, people are bringing back now. So it's, it's mm-hmm. pretty cool. And I think the hardest part is like everybody saying, yeah, it's, it's easy. You just make a track and you sign it and then it, it goes out. It's so easy. No, it's not people won't sign tracks that are bad. And so, <laughs> so, especially when you're with Armada and stuff, like they, they have high standards. So they, um, they expect you to bring your A game every single release. And that, which means I need to bring my A game every single yeah. time in the studio. So it, it's the same as it was like the only, only like, how to put it upside I have now in that regard is the fact that I, I do know all these people and I can send stuff to Armin just immediately and go like, dude, check this out. And that's cool. I think it's important for people to understand that you can never really be settled with production, at least, you know, the way that I see it, like, it seems like, you know, things are a bit easier for you on the networking promotion release standpoint, but you still have the same problems that everyone listening to this faces, which is getting attracted to a release ready quality. And I think- exactly. Yeah, we had somebody on a previous podcast kind of talk about that. He was in his like mid to late 30s and he talked about how he liked to collab with younger producers because it almost like keeps him young and keeps him on his toes for what people are doing in a modern age. And I think you have to be hungry if you want to stay relevant and keep up with the times. Exactly. And people like I've never been afraid to try out new stuff. Like I've always played everything and I always made everything. And that have, to be fair, like I think that has kept me young as well. It's like I, I I feel I feel awesome when I'm sitting in the studio and I'm I'm making something that I've never made before uh, in a different genre and maybe a genre that didn't ex- even exist two years ago. Yeah. So it's, it it keeps it's not only keeps you on your toes it also shows you a whole other world as well that you can bring in to like the trans world for example like uh, yeah like there's if there's anything that's that's lacking in a trans track I'm thinking like okay m- maybe a jo- another genre has an idea on how this can go. No, that's that's sort of what I think has been like. That's the reason I I'm still here after 15 years. It's the fact that I've been able to produce tracks that somehow even youngsters kind of like. Yeah, I think that's crucial for anyone listening to this podcast. Even if you're really into one style, just really opening your mind to all different styles of not just dance music but music in general. There's something yes. that you can take or learn from so many different styles and. Yeah. And I think as long as you're just pushing through with that, it 
can you know bode well for you in the long run definitely and uh i actually have an example of that uh i made this track about i think maybe now it's five years ago yeah, if, yeah i think it's five years ago it's called dawn um that track is based on basically how how rock and metal bands were introducing their tracks like with a riff and then yeah like a ride and then just adding the bass afterwards so that's actually inspired by metal and rock basically yeah i love that <laughs> Uh, I'm an old drummer, so I thought, I mean, let's try, let's try to do this. And I just had like a kick, a ride, and the bass, and the, the grittiness from the mid bass, and that worked. It worked really yeah. well, and I I enjoyed it too. And it had mm-hmm. the arrangement or or like the sound structure of it didn't have anything to do with trance in the beginning. And then I added a, a nice little trancey kind of symphonic kind of break to it, and then added the rock part again. <laughs> <laughs> and it seemed to work. People liked yeah. it, so that was cool. <laughs> I love that. So earlier you mentioned that you do have a family. I think a lot of people listening to this podcast are, you know, working a nine to five. Some of them might have a family and struggle to find that time for production. You know, you are doing this full time, so it's a bit different for you, but still you've got a lot of commitments outside of music. So kind of talk about what's worked or what really hasn't worked for you to, you know, schedule out time for production while having all of those other responsibilities outside of you, you know, working out, just messing around in Cubase. Well, I can tell you already, it's tough. It's yeah. sometimes downright impossible. <laughs> but it's, yeah. <laughs> uh, I have a daughter who is now 15 years old, uh, so she's becoming a lot more independent as well. And dad is not as cool as he used to be when she was like <laughs> 10, 11. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. <laughs> but yeah, no, it's. Um, I was thinking uh, the other day about the same thing. Now I'm home. I'm get. I get to do a lot of stuff that I didn't back in days. I even have problems remembering to pay my bills because I come home from a tour and then realize uh, after a month that I'm like, oh, I'm way overdue. <laughs> <laughs> so it's uh, even that was a struggle. So I actually had to have help from my parents, and I just had to like get the, give them money and just like pay my bills, please. Yeah. <laughs> <I'm not home. laughs> So it's like now being at home and being able to actually take care of everything around my 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 own like personal life. As I have to admit, that it, it's pretty. It's been pretty easy. Like, but I still have a lot of work. I'm in the studio yeah. basically every day. I make sets for streaming. I make I make a lot of music. I make a lot of remixes. Uh, and yeah, it's it's. So technically, I'm, I'm now I have sort of like a nine to five job, and I try to treat it as such as well. I need yeah. to have structure because when you're touring, you don't have structure. There's no structure yeah. at all. It's it's one place here, one place there, and you don't know. At one point, you're, you're unsure on on like where you're waking up in the world. <laughs> so <Yeah>. it's uh, <laughs> so now being uh, like having that kind of structure as well. It's it's good for me to have at one point. But I'd have to admit, I do miss my touring. Yeah. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> so, yeah. Cool. So, a few more questions and then we'll wrap things up. So, first off, we've got a lot of newer producers listening to this podcast that are just kind of getting started out with production. What advice would you give to them to give them the best chance of success moving forward with music? I've also realized that there's a ton of different advices you can give there and maybe none, none of them will work or every, everyone will work. Yeah. Uh, but I, I would always say like, uh, if you really want to be successful as a producer and really want to be successful as a DJ or a touring artist, you have to want it. You have to like, really, you have to go inside yourself and figure out, is this really what I want? And yeah. if you do, you sit down and you grind and you just sit there learning and go to every tutorial you can find, no matter what genre, because uh, 
producers are awesome. Like one of my favorite producers right now is Ian Kirkpatrick, which is a, basically a pop producer. But he he has amazing technique and he has this tiny little bits and bobs. I think he has like two or three streams that's on YouTube as well. Look at tutorials, figure out where you want to be, and you have to find your own sound. You have to find out what you want to sound like, basically. it's 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 If you just sound like one of the bunch, you're going to end up one of the bunch. And I think it's about, like, if, if you sit there in, in the studio for 12 hours, you, you go to sleep, you eat, and then you really want to go back in the studio again, I think that then you're more than just, like, average interest you're actually uh passionate about what you're doing as well because you need to have passion because <laughs> i'm gonna say something <laughs> music's gonna eat you up if you don't like <laughs> if it's not your passion it's gonna kill you <laughs> yeah yeah and, and i think it's important to point out that you clearly have a passion for the art of creating music like obviously you like playing shows you like touring and all those things but just you talking about 20, 25 years into this, you love picking up new techniques, new VSTs, you're learning your fourth DAW, like you love the process. And I think there's a lot of people that get into music that like the idea of being a producer, like the idea of being a musician, but don't love the you know aspects of what it actually is to be that. No, exactly. I mean, it is a tedious process. Uh, it, it's always going to yeah. be. I'm, I'm actually hoping it never gets too easy because... <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I, I think creativity also comes from 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 a little bit of a challenge, if you know what I mean. If you yeah. if, if if you need to get to a, from A to B, but there's a ton of roads to take in between, I think I I think that will end up having B being so much better. <laughs> I don't know what yeah. it is, but it's just like, mm -hmm. and uh, I can probably sit for an hour just fiddling around with a hi hat. And I don't know why. Like, I, I can sit there and I'm like, why am I doing this? And all of a sudden I have a kick and a hi-hat and that's all the beat I need. Just having fun, like, and for, for <laughs> to be fair though, I've had people in my studio looking at me working and they have no idea what I'm doing and they can't hear <laughs> any changes. And I'm yeah. like, well, I'll just wait, just wait until I'm done. And I can add like a, I can, I can give you a little bit of insight. I sampled uh, the cistern of my, uh, <laughs> my toilet. Uh, <laughs> That when it was empty, so you get that sound, yeah. and I and I used it in Redwoods back in the days <laughs> because I just couldn't find a percussion that was good enough. I didn't want to do what I wanted. Talk about being creatively open to anything that comes to you. I love that. So technically, that track sounds like shit. <laughs> I love that. No, that's some things that can happen. Sometimes you just have this stupid idea, and it just works. Yeah. Awesome. So last question, you've got your latest single instinct, which everyone should go check out. What else is going to be coming up for you in the next few months? Oh, I've been quite active on the remix side of things. So I have about three, oh, it's going to be four remixes coming out uh, early and late fall. Uh, I have about four new originals as well. Um, yeah, it's, it's going to be a busy fall, um, winter period when it comes to releases. But I mean, it's COVID season. I mean, you're, you you're sitting in be. the studio. Yeah. And to be fair, though, like I've, I've had a, a ton of time to sit, like I said, and, and geek out. So maybe it's going a little bit more back to the roots. Like I even have a progressive track that is like it's taking its time to get where it's supposed to go. Back in the days, like, uh, well, I, I used to do it a lot before I actually started playing for like a lot of people. And uh, because I'm playing a lot of those shows, a lot of my tracks have become a lot shorter. 
yeah, it just works better. Like I, I can, I can visualize how things are going to work. But this track yeah. was just meant as a, as a listening thing, and I realized that this, it's been so long since I just made that. So it's, uh, yeah, no, it's going to be, it's going to be a very interesting uh, fall summer. I'm actually, I've just released a remix uh, uh, as well. That's called, uh, it's Tyron Dixon uh, featuring Chris Kiss. Uh, destinations it's it's okay. it's it's on my label actually as well and I, I i heard it the first time i loved the vocal i loved the track itself i thought you know what i'm gonna remix this just because yeah. i felt like it and i had the time so yeah that's uh i hope people like that one too awesome well with that we will wrap things up for this episode you can find origin nielsen's music in the description of this podcast so go give it a listen as this episode is just about over origin it's been great chatting with you appreciate you being on the show well thank you for having me i, I would love to come back whenever you want me awesome 